0: Our sermon text this morning comes from Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he he rose And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, "'Please come to us without delay.' So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. We're going to uh, continue our study of the book of Acts this morning. um, If you have been with us over the last few months, you know that we have hopped around. uh, I mean, we've been going straight through the book, but every story tends to be this big story. There's one miraculous event after another. Most recently we heard the story of Paul's conversion. Next week we're going to read the story where Peter receives a revelation that all the Gentiles are going to be included into the kingdom of God. But here, in these few verses that we just read, we have a little bit of a smaller moment. After several big stories about Paul, after we have these couple of healing miracles. And um, as I read through it this week, thinking about why these are here, I, I was kind of a little confused, honestly, trying to make sense of the narrative flow, why all of a sudden we would go from, from Paul's story back to Peter's, into these small events. Why, do, why are they here? Why does Luke place them in this exact position? Now, I, I say, I'm saying they're small. I know that the, the reality of them is big, right? I know a lame person walking is a big deal. I know that um, someone being brought back from the dead is a big deal. There's, those are amazing things, but let's face it. These are not the uh, headline events in the book of Acts. Um, and I think that is exactly the point. Uh, As we look at this this morning, I think it's the ordinariness of these stories where we're going to find the most value. I think as we we focus in on the stuff that's really not all that amazing, uh, that we're going to find the message of this passage and, and its impact in our lives today. So what I want us to do this morning is just answer three questions. I want us to answer. First of all, why these miracles? Why did Luke put these in here? Why these miracles specifically? Secondly, why these people? And then thirdly, what does it mean for us? So why these miracles, why these people, and what does it mean for us? All right, let's start with the miracles. If you're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? If you're familiar with those stories, then some of these accounts should sound familiar to you. Um, they are, in fact, nearly identical to miracles that Jesus did. Not only just the facts of uh, the miracle, right? Not just uh, raising a dead person or uh, healing a lame person, but even down to the details, even down to the words that Peter speaks, they're almost the exact same. Uh, here, Peter, he says to Aeneas, Rise make your bed. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Jesus speaks to a lame man, and he says, get up, take your bed, and walk. Mark chapter 5, maybe you remember the story where Jesus is healing Jairus's daughter, and in that moment, he says that he goes to the little girl, and he speaks to her in Aramaic, and he says, Talitha cum, which means little girl, get up. Well, here in our passage in Aramaic, uh, Peter says, Tabitha, arise. And in Aramaic, it's the almost exact same thing. It's just one letter different. He says, Tabitha, kum. And that's not an accident. That's not just a coincidence. Luke has told these stories because of their stunning similarity to the miracles that Jesus did. Now, there's another place in Scripture where we see two people who did a lot of the same kinds of miracles. It's in First and 2 Kings. Maybe you remember some of those stories of, about Elijah and Elisha who came after him. You, you read the stories and, and Elijah, he's this amazing prophet who has these uh, miraculous abilities, all these great things happen, and then when he is taken up by the Lord, he passes on his, the mantle and Elijah, Elisha takes his place and does many of the same things, sometimes even greater things. But their relationship is very different. The relationship between Elijah and Elisha is not the same as the relationship between Jesus and Peter. And Luke wants us to realize that. He, he doesn't want us to make that mistake. And he, we know that because there's four simple words in this passage. It's the words, Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus Christ heals you. That might seem simple, but it's extremely important before we go any further to, to note that because the message of Acts has been very clear from the first sentence in chapter 1. When Luke was addressing this book to Theophilus, the first thing he said was in my first book, which was Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And in this book, the book of Acts, the point is all that Jesus Continues to do and teach, so it's not that the gospel was what Jesus did, and this is what the church has done in His place. But the the book of Acts is that Jesus is continuing to work. What He's continuing to do. So so Acts, it's not about Jesus's successors. It's not like Second Kings picking up with the story of Elisha, who comes after Elijah. But this is uh, about Jesus's continued work in the church and in history. In other words, the Christian faith is unlike any other religion. Our faith is not a tradition of of rules and laws that have been passed down from one influential teacher to another. Our faith doesn't just rest on a system of doctrines alone, but it's actually based on the resurrected Jesus, who continues to work, who is at work in the world at this moment. And that means Peter, he's not simply stepping up to replace Jesus, but Jesus is working in Peter. And he's still working, right? He's still working in the church today, Amen? amen? He's still at work right now. So then you might ask, I think a good question that follows, if Jesus is still working, if Jesus is still working in his people, well, should we expect this kind of thing? Are we supposed to expect if we're Christians in here that, that when we pray dead people are going to come back to life or paralyzed people are going to be healed? It's a good question. It's a question worth considering. I think all of us, if, if you've lived in the United States long enough at least well even around the world you, you've probably seen faith healers. right? You, if you haven't seen them in person you've seen them on TV. These people who claim that God has given them the gifts to, to do these miraculous works. And you've probably also seen that almost without exception, these people are a total scam, right? One of the most famous was, was Peter Popoff, who was back in the, in the '80s, was really popular. He had these huge crowds that would come out to see him in stadiums, because he had a reputation for, for being a, a guy who could do healing miracles. This prophetic, prophetically receiving people's names and their diseases and, and casting them out and, and seeing healing happen. And uh, if, you, if you don't know the story, the, the guy was exposed very publicly for having this elaborate system of, of cards and radios and earpieces. And it was all fake. But this guy had made, gotten rich off the backs of these people. Now, God does still work miraculously. So the question is, should we expect this? Maybe not on, you know, a, a, a big scale, but, but should we expect this? I think we're right to be skeptical of people who claim that they can do this kind of stuff. Um, I think we should especially be skeptical of people who claim that God's given them this power, and their first instinct is, I'm going to go on TV. <laughs> I, I, I can heal people's diseases this is a great way to get rich, but what about on a small scale? What about when someone you love is sick? Should we pray and expect that God's going to heal them? Should you expect it to happen? Well, yes. Scripture says that when people are sick, we should pray for them. Scripture tells us that God can heal, that he works. And maybe some of you, I wouldn't doubt that some of you in this room have a story about a way that God has worked in your life maybe to bring healing or, or someone who you love. You've seen healing take place. God still does work miracles. But it's not like this. And, and, I, and I want to point that out. This is, it's important for us to know what won't happen uh, when we're praying for God to heal. Because we are not going to have another Peter. We're not going to have another another Paul. There's not anyone else walking around on earth that God has given this kind of authoritative ministry of word and power. There's nobody, in other words, there's nobody on earth who can confidently walk into a room and point at a paralyzed man and say, get up, and know for sure that that person's going to get up. This is something unique to Peter. It's something, uh, a a unique gifting to the apostles, that they had a particular role in God's plan, and so uh, we see them exhibiting the gifts of God in a way that was unique to them and isn't around any longer. Um, And and here's how I can know that. Here's how you can know that from this passage, that I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. Uh, In this passage, Tabitha, Dorcas, right? She's a Christian. She's a believer. She's surrounded by believers who are mourning for her and and praying for her. But you notice in the passage that none of them thought it would be useful to pray for her resurrection. Right? Even though they're all believers, none of them thought that it was likely that their prayers would bring her back from the dead. And so they did what was normal They, they mourned over her death. Now, they did do one thing that wasn't normal. It says they washed her body. And instead of burying her, they put her in the upper room and waited because they heard that Peter was in town. And they went and found Peter and had someone bring Peter back because they knew that that he had this miraculous ability. But they didn't think that was going to be the expectation, a, a common expectation for every Christian. So the reason I'm telling you that is because if someday you are sick, and, and some guy comes up to you and says, You know, if you just had the faith, if you just had faith, God would heal you. You can tell him to get lost. In fact, I, I may have told you guys this story before, but I have a friend who, who has a, a fatal illness, but he also has good theology. And some person, I don't know if they were well meaning or what, came up to him in the context of like a Christian group and, and said just that Hey, you know, I want to pray for you because, you know, if you just have faith, God can heal you of this disease. And he said, well, why do I need to have faith? If you have faith, God can heal me of this disease. <laughs> I thought that was great, right? Take the inappropriate guilt and just put it right back on that person. You can carry that. God can heal. And, and, and sometimes he does. And we should pray for his healing. But But the reason he doesn't heal, it's not because we lack faith. It's because God works how he works. But Peter's role is unique. Peter's power is unique. So that brings us back to the question at hand, why is this story here? Why does Luke interrupt the story of Paul's conversion to show us these miracles? Well, we just said it's not to show us all the cool things that you can do if you just have enough faith. No, it's to show us, well, he wants to remind us that Jesus Christ is still leading the church, like we talked about. Jesus is still moving, and that he has uniquely gifted Peter authority in that process. So, the reason why these miracles are so similar to the things that Jesus had done is because Luke wants us to see just how close. Peter is to Jesus, and that's going to be really important for us as we keep going into next week's passage, because Peter is about to receive a revelation that the Gentiles are welcomed into the kingdom, and it's going to be something no one has ever heard before. It's going to flip the church on its head, and so right now Luke is showing us that, that Peter is a guy that we should listen to, because Jesus is uniquely with him. All right, so that's, that's the first question. Why is this here? It's to show us Peter's role. But the second question is, why these people? Why Aeneas and Tabitha? What was so special about them? What did did they do that they were allowed to be the recipients of these kind of great miracles? What did they do that God led one of his greatest apostles, Peter, to come and heal him? That he allowed Jesus to completely uh, transform their lives. What had they done? Well, nothing. And that's where I want us to focus our attention for a minute. I want you to see, as, as we think about this man and this woman, that God delights in the ordinary lives of ordinary Christians god delights in the ordinary lives of ordinary christians so far in this book we have gone from one amazing event to the next we've looked at one amazing person after another but we got to be careful when we study so many stories like this there's a lot that we should learn from these heroes right there's a lot to learn from from peter and paul and philip and stephen Great things. But just because there are heroes who make up the bulk of this story, we shouldn't start to then believe that the only way we make an impact for God is if we do great things. If we become amazing, fantastic heroes ourselves. And so that's why I really like that we have this story of Tabitha right here. Luke tells us that she was a woman who was full of good works and charity. But she wasn't super. Her job, her life, she spent it making clothes for widows. That was a small thing, especially by the world's standards. If this story hadn't occurred, we would never know anything about Tabitha. Tabitha wasn't going to be recorded in the history books. Tabitha wasn't going to be famous for anything. And yet, her ordinary laugh made a huge impact. When Peter shows up, one by one, it says these women, these these widows, who were poor and marginalized women, came up to Peter one after one, and they're, they're showing these tunics, these pieces of clothes, these garments that she's made for them, just testifying to how much her life had, had meant to them. And it's a beautiful tribute. Each one of them knew that Tabitha mattered. This woman, she had lived a very ordinary life to the glory of God. And God saw her. He was aware of her. God loved her. Just sit in that for a moment. God loves the ordinary Christian. If you've grown up in the church, you may have not ever heard that before. <laughs> Especially if you've grown up in the like, American evangelical church. We don't do a very good job of expressing God's love for ordinary Christians. We, we are the kind of church that's really obsessed with, with big, right? I heard one pastor call our tradition the tradition of ADD Christianity, meaning we're constantly uh, being distracted by the, the big, bright, flashy, shiny things. We're always looking for what's next, just like our culture, right? Just like the culture that shaped American evangelicalism. We are always about fame and glory. We want to make a big splash. So we're always looking for the next thing, the exciting thing, the new way to do it. Whether it's trinkets, whether it's, you know, the what would Jesus do bracelets, or the prayer of Jabez, or you know, megachurches and laser shows, we're always looking for something flashy. But all along, we're taught uh, that the real Christians, you know, in that in those churches, we, we're taught that the real Christians are not the ordinary Christians, but but they're the ones who do the flashy things, the ones who take the biggest risks for God. Right? It's not enough uh, just to live a godly life every day, to read the Word, to pray for your children if you have them, to love your neighbors. But what you really need to do is move to a third world country or start a a Christian nonprofit or plant a church because those are the heroes. Those are the people that God really loves. That's what we should aspire to be. But look at Tabitha. Her life was unremarkable to the glory of God. We know her because of this miracle, but we wouldn't have otherwise she would have been like the vast majority of god's people who have lived throughout history a woman without fame or recognition who had god's delight the point i'm trying to make is that that greatness in the eyes of god is different from greatness in the eyes of the world and we get that confused even in the church Francis Schaeffer, who is a really influential pastor and teacher uh, in the 20th century, this is a quote from him in a a sermon that he preached, but he said, Nowhere more than in America are Christians caught in the syndrome of size. Size will show success. If I am consecrated, there will necessarily be large quantities of people, dollars, etc. This is not so. Not only does God not say that size and spiritual power go together, but he even reverses it, especially in the teachings of Jesus. And he tells us to be deliberately careful not to choose a place that's too big for us. We all tend to emphasize big works and big places, but all such emphasis is of the flesh. To think in such terms is simply to harken back to the old, unconverted, egoist, self-centered me. This attitude, taken from the world, is more dangerous to the Christian than any fleshly amusement or practice. He says, it is the flesh. So Francis Schaeffer, he's saying our fixation on doing big things for God a lot of times it has more to do with our own glory than it does with his. But in God's kingdom, remember, he says it's the last who are first. Or do you remember, has any, have any of you read The Great Divorce? It's a C.S. Lewis story. It's like a, the whole thing's a big allegory. And in that story, he imagines himself uh, as a person basically touring through heaven. And he's interacting with these uh, glorified beings. And in one of the moments in that book, he finally comes upon the most glorious person in all of, all of heaven, basically. And here's how he tells the story. This is the procession that is around this, this glorious woman. He says, First came bright spirits, not the spirits of men, and they danced and they scattered flowers that were soundlessly following, falling, lightly drifting around her. Then on the left and right, on each side of this forest, came youthful shapes, boys on one hand, girls on the other, and if I could remember their singing, and if I could just write down the notes, no man who read the score would ever grow sick or old. And between them went musicians, and after this, a lady, in whose honor all of it was being done. Is it? I whispered to my guide. No, not at all, he said. It's someone you have never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. Well, she seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Aye, she is one of the great ones, famed in this country. But fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. Jesus, he says that greatness in the kingdom of God means smallness. But we tend to forget that. In Mark, he says whoever would be great among you would be your servant. And whoever would be first among you would be slave to all. Now I want to be careful as I as I say all that because I want you to be free from the pursuit of greatness in the world. But that doesn't mean you're off the hook now. Just because I'm saying that, it doesn't mean that now I'm saying, well, now you all have the excuse to just be lazy Christians. That's not what I want you to hear. Pursuing, in fact, pursuing this kind of small greatness is oftentimes a whole lot more difficult than the other kind. An old classmate of mine was on a radio show a few years ago, um, and, and she was talking about this exact kind of experience. She was talking about how when she was a young Christian, when she was full of zeal and, quote, doing great things for God, when she was living in war-torn countries doing evangelism, uh, she actually found that life much easier than the life God had called her to in her 30s, where she had a couple of young kids and a husband. She said, just parenting them loving her husband, trying to be a godly woman at her ordinary job, she said that stuff was far more difficult for her than the other thing. She said glorifying God in the ordinary is where it's really hard. It's in the ordinary life where we are required to die to ourself and die to our sin and die to our ambition in a way that, well, that she never had to before. And in that process, she realized just how much of those great things she was doing for God were actually more for herself than they were for him. See, Tabitha, in our story, she was an ordinary woman who did ordinary things. But God loved her. And just so we might, so we don't think that God loved her because she did really good at her ordinary things, we have this other example of Aeneas. And Aeneas is a man blessed by God as well, and and what did Aeneas do? He didn't have any good works to present to God. It says that he had been doing nothing but laying on a mat for eight years, and yet Jesus loved him. Jesus didn't pass him over. So there's something really beautiful in these two stories. And something really convicting as well, because the question of why did God choose them? Why did he pick them in this moment in history? Well, it's simply because he loved them. Because he loves ordinary Christians. He delights in them. So what does it mean for us? What do these stories mean for our life this week as we move out into into our ordinariness. Well, I hope you're already making some connections. On one hand, these stories are a point of conviction of sin because it means, of course, uh, we as Christians, we need to examine our hearts. What is motivating our service to God? Are we out to glorify him or are we really out for our own greatness? So on one hand we should be convicted but on the other hand this is a passage that offers us great hope because it means at the very core you are enough you are enough as you are there are no small people and there are no small places in god's creation the gospel message is that god is the one who redeems his people and it's not based off of your past resume it's not based off of how good you've been and the good things you've done and it's not based off your future potential the great things that you're gonna do for him right god doesn't save you because you've been so great and he doesn't save you because you're gonna do something great later no god saves his people because was he, he god saves you Because he created you. In his own image, he created you to know him and he loves you. God, he comes to to each of us in the person of Jesus, just like he came to Tabitha. Each and every one of us, he comes to bring us new life. To free us from the power of sin and even the, the dominion of death. The good news is that that every ordinary person who puts their faith in Christ will one day, just like Tabitha, hear him say, rise and enter into glory. All we have to do is trust him. All we have to do is, is repent and name him as our savior. See, God is in the business of redeeming the ordinary. And the point of this book is that Jesus hasn't stopped working. He is still redeeming the ordinary every day. And so maybe you find yourself this morning in that place where you wonder if God really does see you. Maybe after years of struggling with the same thing, you're you're starting to give up hope that God could actually do something for you. That he actually sees your struggle, that he intends to to redeem you from it. And I want to remind you here that Aeneas, it said that he laid on that mat for eight years waiting for Jesus. And Tabitha, she died. (laughs) But God hadn't forgotten. And he won't forget you either. So wherever that place of doubt might be for you today, Wherever you might be fearing that God has left you behind, maybe there's some stronghold of sin in your life. Something that you just can't shake. Something that you continue to struggle with. Or maybe it's this whole pursuit of glory that we're talking about. You're bound up in the the weight of that. Or maybe you're like my friend on the radio show. You just find that the the drudgery of of normal, boring, daily obedience is much harder than you ever thought it was going to be. Maybe you're stuck in one of those places where you're finding it hard to die to yourself, to to love your children, to to love your spouse if you have one. But God, He can free us from every kind of bondage. When we cry out to Him in repentance and faith, we're promised that that He's going to answer And so here's what Aeneas and Tabitha mean for you. It means he sees you. He's not going to abandon you. And today, just like back then, he calls us to surrender our lives in repentance and be healed. He calls us to rise and walk and live for his fame and for his glory instead of our own. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of your word that shows us ordinary people doing ordinary things. Lord, sometimes I struggle under the weight of my ordinariness. Lord, I I wrestle uh, with the belief that, that I must be something special to count in your eyes. And I thank you that you show us that that's a lie. Lord, that no one can be created in the image of God and be anything but glorious. And so I pray that today, wherever we're coming from, Lord, we would long, first of all, for relationship with You. That You would draw us to Yourself. That You would speak personally to each of our hearts that You love us. That You give us the faith to lay down our sin and follow You. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.